From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. The governor's office said that anyone who opposes the Don't Say Gay bill is complicit in pedophilia. That is the office of the governor of the third largest state in the union accusing Floridians a majority of whom don't support this bill, of being pedophiles. It's pretty clear that in the post-Trump presidency GOP, the more extreme the pander to the political religious right, the more eager the politician is likely to be to do that pandering. A powerful example is Florida's Don't Say Gay bill, signed by Governor Ron DeSantis in March and in effect since last month. A coalition of groups including Equality Florida, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and others are receiving support from, at last count, 15 states in the District of Columbia, and they're suing Florida over this extremist legislation. We'll get details from Lambda Legal staff attorney Kel Olson. There's something beyond just simply affirming trans folks. There's something beyond simply saying the Bible says it's okay to be trans, but that when we read scripture together um, and we read it through a marginalized person's lens, that it actually unlocks something for all of us. Father Shannon Kearns is co-founder of Queer Theology, an ever-growing online resource for and by LGBTQI plus persons of faith. As a transgender man, he brings deep personal experience to accompanying others of queer experience on their faith journeys. An ordained priest in the Old Catholic Church, Father Shea, as he's known, has just published a book entitled In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. And he'll be with us later on this week's State of Belief Radio. Well, more and more young adults are dropping out of church. According to a recent study, 66% have stopped attending. And a Canadian scholar looks at how religiously unaffiliated millennials are finding connections around faith and spirituality online. You'll meet Dr. Sarah Wilkins Laflamme, author of Religion, Spirituality, and Secularity Among Millennials. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and uh, the end may indeed be nigh. Did you see how a few weeks ago Fox News featured a conservative Christian family raising a trans kid? The coverage was respectful and allowed the parents to explain how their faith informs their inclusive parenting values. Well, the hilariously named multi-million dollar family research council sure noticed it. They're damning Fox for betraying FRC's theocratic and bigoted version of fundamentalism and giving FRC an opening to trumpet their own soon-to-launch global television facility in Louisiana as a more reliable source of biblical truth news or something. Remember, FRC is registered as an actual church for tax-exempt dark money purposes, and now we see where a lot of that money is going. The outfit also recently launched The Washington Stand, a sad allusion to Ephesians, and a daily blast of far-right propaganda cloaked in religious truthiness. The newsletter joins the 800 radio stations claimed by FRC's daily Washington Watch program and lurched to condemn in the strongest possible terms, I, I must have missed the biblical part of this, the FBI's measured raid on Mar-a-Lago this week. Just an example of the kind of church work they're engaged in. They know how important controlling media is for Dominionist Seven Mountains dictatorships, and that's exactly what they're spending a fortune on doing to insulate their true followers and donors from any voices but those adhering to Tony Perkins' infallibility. Meanwhile, the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, launched with the democracy-affirming, inclusivity-emphasizing words of Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. We were a nation founded upon not the words of our founders, but the words of God, because... 
He wrote the Constitution. He empowered them. We were a Christian state, and we've been blessed because of that for so many years. Oh, my dog. And Imam Mohammed Majid, longtime leader of a Northern Virginia mosque and a giant in interfaith relations, has been appointed to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. The Imam is former president of the Islamic Society of North America and current co-president of Religions for Peace. He's been on our show several times and succeeds Gold Star Father Kizer Khan, who served until this past May on the commission. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. The biggest authoritarian religious right win of 2022 may be the end of Roe v. Wade. But in Florida, White House wannabe Ron DeSantis seems to have perfected the pander, with laws squelching classroom lessons on racism in America, as well as the notorious Don't Say Gay bill set to impact the state's schools this September. An urgent court challenge by a number of advocacy groups is being led by Florida Families and Lambda Legal, an effective national civil rights and advocacy group founded in 1973. And I'm very happy to welcome staff attorney Kel Olson to State of Belief Radio. Kel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jack. What's a quick summary of this bill, which proponents describe as a well-intentioned protection for kids and the actual harm it would bring to the classroom? Sure. Well, the law for ages kindergarten through third grade in Florida is a complete ban on uh, discussion or instruction. It's a bit ambiguous, as is much of the law, um, on topics of sexual orientation and gender identity. And again, those are terms that are not defined in the law. And then for kids in fourth grade through 12th, there is uh, a restriction based on the same subjects on some undefined notion of what is appropriate. So again, leaving a lot of room. And then the um, interesting and unique aspect of this law that we're seeing with a lot of these laws more recently is to, instead of having what we would traditionally have, which is the ability for the school district to interpret that law and then apply it, um, is that there's an additional layer where individual parents can sue the school under the law if they are unsatisfied with how the school district is implementing it. So as you might imagine, um, coupled with the, the motivation for the law, this invites parents to sue the school um, if they feel the school should be censoring LGBT content more broadly than it is, and it allows parents to carry forth the discriminatory purpose of the law in the way that they're attacking and watching over schools with um, not only the ability to sue, but the ability to collect costs and attorney fees. And that's only from the parent side, not from the school side, if the school wins that lawsuit. Wow. Wow. How involved is the political religious right in promoting this and similar pieces of radical legislation? I don't know if I can speak to how much they're 
directly involved in this legislation. Uh, we definitely saw references in the legislative history to the purpose of the law being um, to allow parents with a certain idea of a particular moral code to limit what is dis discussed in school and to prevent students from coming out um, and to prevent teachers and school administrators from offering support in the way they traditionally would have, which is to be able to continue supporting youth by providing the message that all students are respected and safe at school, that all families look different, that kind of messaging um, that schools traditionally have safely been able to do now is being targeted as being, you know, being a gender ideology or as promoting something just by acknowledging things in a positive way. So the concern, of course, is that even neutral statements of support that schools have traditionally been able to give will be attacked. Wow. There are some very brave families that have stepped into the public eye to help explain why this is really a very big deal for them and for others. Can you talk about some of them? Absolutely. So we have some wonderful plaintiffs who have stepped forth. And I should mention, we also are working with some other wonderful groups. So not just Lambda Legal um, representing these families, but also the Southern Legal Council, which is Florida-based, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the law firm Baker McKenzie is doing pro bono work. So we have a, a great team um, supporting these plaintiffs who have stepped up in a very hostile environment, which as you imagine is rather intimidating at this point to do. So we're very thankful that they're willing to do that. Um, and they have decided that they need to do something, even if it does put them out there a little bit. Um, we have family, for example, that has um, <clears throat> multiple kids in the Orange County School District. And one of them is a non-binary middle school student, 12 year old. And they have two younger kids in that K through three range where discussion of gender identity is banned. So for, mo for a lot of us, we remember, or if we've had small kids go through school, we know that in the K through three range, they often show up to school. And the first thing they're asked to do is an all about me project or a what I did over my summer vacation. And kids at that age are talking about family. They're talking about um, their siblings and it's natural and reasonable to think that if they use they them pronouns for their sibling another classmate's going to have a question and as k through three teachers do they teach by discussion they don't come in with just a script at the beginning of the day they interact with the kids they talk with them and so there's a concern that um, teachers if are, are being warned to not wade into this territory or not talk about gender identity and of course that means um transgender students. Um, and so there's a concern that if, if these younger siblings are shut down when they talk about their older sibling or if questions about them are even hushed up or pushed to the side, that that's going to bring a lot of shame um, and, and harm against these families because little kids are trying to understand why they can't talk about their sibling at school or why questions about their sibling are being hushed up when at home their parents are really trying to instill the values of being proud of their family and loving every member of their family for who they are. Um, similarly, we have a family who has, who is a same sex couple and has young kids in the K through three range. And they've had the difficult discussion heading in when their, their third grader wanted to talk about the pride parade they attended in London this summer. And they had to have the difficult discussion before going into school of, well, they could say nothing and they could risk the fact that they're, you know, 
third grader, rather small child might have that part of their story hushed or quieted or even politely would be confused about why. So instead they had the discussion with them beforehand. You, you might want to leave that part out because there's this law and it might, the teacher might not be able to let you talk about it or might not be able to let people have questions about it. And of course, again, that's very confusing and harmful to children while their parents are trying to teach them to be proud and that it's okay, that there's nothing wrong with their family. And delivering these two messages at the same time is really difficult. There's nothing wrong with your family, but you might not be able to talk about it. Um, look, school's about to start. What's, what's the timeline you anticipate for this legal challenge? Right. A lot of our families did head back to school just yesterday, I believe. These lawsuits do take a long time. You know, we're moving as quickly as we can to both collect information about how the school year is starting and how things are playing out and um, looking at all of our options for bringing that to the court and asking the court to, um, to put the law on hold or to otherwise minimize the harm that's happening in the meantime while the law is ongoing. And that gets a bit complicated because we're, you know, we have to balance um, seeing how the law is playing out and then asking for that relief at the same time. So those are the kinds of things we're looking at as the school year gets started. Sort of like building the plane while it's already taken off. Right. And as we mentioned, a lot of these harms have already happened. And so we don't want to have more harm than necessary already happening before we do that. But we know a lot of things are up in the air right now as well. Yeah. Now, there are there are 15 states plus the District of Columbia that have joined with you in uh, opposing uh, this this measure. It, is that unusual? And and whether it is or not, what does it mean that you have that support? There are a number of states stepping up now. Um, there is another lawsuit that was filed challenging the law before ours, and those states have uh, have appeared in that lawsuit. And we anticipate they'll be, you know, similarly interested in, in all challenges. This is a newer trend that has come up lately. Um, it means a lot to have the support. Um, states have been taking positions on a variety of issues um, more recently. So I think it's a trend we'll continue to see. And it's just a statement to the court and hopefully to the larger community that there is not a uniformity of opinion on this, that there are wide you know, swaths of the country that really support the idea of having, um, having equal access to ideas in schools, having schools that can respect um, all students and families. And really, I think it just broadens that message that all students should be respected and safe in school. And that none of us are too shameful to be the topic of respectful learning and conversation in schools. So on the other side of the question I just asked you, what's up with Florida? I mean, it's not the only place where these things are happening, but it is a primary locus of, of this kind of battle in the culture wars in this country. What's the deal? Yeah. Unfortunately, Florida is not as unique as it might seem. As you mentioned, there are similar laws introduced across the country. Uh, some have passed, some will continue to be introduced in the next legislative session. So I would encourage people to not get too um, complacent thinking that this is just happening in Florida. This is really a coordinated national movement and where 
there is some legislative room for things to get passed. We're going to see it popping up first. But as the momentum builds, it kind of shifts our idea of what is reasonable um, as these things pass in places. And it can really affect people's appetite for trying to impose this kind of control on the public school system. We're also seeing that it's affecting teachers wanting to stay in the profession, even more teacher shortages, which of course is very much happening in Florida as well. And some of the proponents of this kind of legislation are also at the same time really advocating for moving to funding of more private schools and seem to not only not be unaware of the effect of these laws on harming public schools, but actually welcoming it. And that is a disturbing aspect of this that yeah, no kidding. Seeing as well. Uh, I know that Lambda Legal has set up a whistleblower campaign called We Say Gay. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The um, A lot Many folks who have been challenging these laws have used the the tagline, we say gay. We also try to expand that out and say we say gay and trans because we just want to note that this law really has been focused on trans youth in particular, and we don't want to leave that out of the conversation. But we have set up a, a hotline that people can call. We, of course, have a lot of folks impacted by the law, and so this is focused especially on people who are having particular impacts rather than general concerns. Um, but there is a line that people can call for some information and resources. There are two lines we set up. One is 833-I-SAY-GAY and one is 833-SAY-TGNC, which is transgender nonconforming. So again, to be inclusive, they both go to the same place, but we do have those lines set up. Do us a favor and say those numbers one more time in sure. case people were grabbing a pen. <laughs> sure. So that's 833-I-SAY-GAY or 833-SAY-T-G-N-C. Great. Um, Lambda Legal offers a state-by-state guide to the rights and restrictions facing LGBTQI plus families across the country. Tell us a little bit about that resource, please, and how listeners can follow up and support the work of Lambda Legal. Absolutely. So the easiest way to get to all of our resources is to visit the Lambda Legal website, which is lambdalegal.org. And there are a number of ways to get resources in that way. We have a map where folks can click on their state and learn a little bit about the specific laws that do and don't apply in their state. Um, We also have a legal, legal help desk. And again, that's easiest to access through the website because it is channeled based on your region as to which particular number you call. There's also an online form that people can fill out and submit that way. So that's the best way to start on your path to getting some information and resources or to getting in touch with us. And Lambda Legal has offices all over the country. That's correct. We have headquarters in New York, but we have offices all spreading across New York to L.A., we have offices in Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago. So um, we're, we're scattered throughout. And in the new day and age, even more of us are scattered elsewhere. So I sit in Arizona, even though I'm affiliated with our Los Angeles office. So we try to try to be engaged nationwide. Wonderful. Kel Olson serves as staff attorney at Lambda Legal's Western Regional Office. Founded in 1973, Lambda Legal is the oldest and largest national legal organization whose mission is to achieve full recognition of the civil rights of lesbians, gay men, 
bisexuals, and transgender people through impact litigation, education, and public policy work. In Florida, the organization is working with Florida families and a coalition of other groups to challenge the Don't Say Gay bill signed earlier this year by Governor Ron DeSantis. Kel, thanks so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, In the Margins, a transgender man's journey with scripture. And later, religion, spirituality, and secularity among millennials. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. It's encouraging to see many faith leaders and communities stand with the Americans being targeted most harshly by today's culture warriors. In particular, racial minorities and LGBTQI plus persons. At the same time, there's a great need for support systems and role models for people of faith targeted with weaponized religion. Queer Theology is a vast online set of resources co-founded by Father Shannon Kearns and Brian Murphy, which has now added an inspiring book by Father Shea, as Shannon Kearns is known, entitled In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture, which is now part of those resources. And I'm happy it brings the author to State of Belief Radio. Shea, congratulations on the book and welcome to our show. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Queer Theology is a website leveraging new technologies and forms of media to reach a global audience. What made you want to go old school and write a book? (laughs) You know, we've been doing Queer Theology for a really long time uh, and have loved the community that has, has come about a part of that. I've always dreamed of writing a book. So some of this was, you know, fulfilling the dreams of eight year old little Shay, who (laughs) always wanted to be an author. Um, But also, Online feels often like we have to do things fast, right? It has to be in a bite-sized tweet. It has to be in a 10-minute podcast. And I really wanted the space and time to go deep on my own story and these stories from scripture. Uh, And a book felt like the time that would allow us to breathe together and to breathe into these stories and spend some time with one another. We'll talk about what you were hoping to get across to readers by sharing this part of your story. Yeah, you know, many of the books that exist um, around trans issues and religion are very much in a 101 space explaining what it means to be trans or talking about how the Bible can defend, um, how we can use the Bible to defend ourselves as trans individuals. And I love those books. They're, they're really important. But I wanted to go a step further and really talk about how reading the Bible through a trans lens is actually a gift, not just to trans folks, but to everyone. That it, it unlocks unique insights into these texts and stories and allows us to grapple with things like our bodies and our genders and the way we move through the world in new ways. Uh, and so I was really excited to, to build off of the 
incredible work that people have already done and hopefully take it in a bit of a new direction. What are, what are a couple of the life lessons that you share in the pages of In the Margins? Yeah, so each chapter looks at um, a bit of my own story and then also either a Bible character or a story from the Bible. And so it one of the ones that I um, really loved writing was about Joseph, Joseph of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, <laughs> uh, and talking about how Joseph's experience or other people's experience of Joseph's gender um, or gender presentation impacted how he moved through the world. That was a, a story that was really meaningful for me to, to dive deep into. Um, and then several stories from, from Jesus's life, um, talking about Jesus's time in the wilderness as he's deciding what kind of leader he's going to be, um, and, and reflecting on my own time in the wilderness of trying to figure out, was I going to transition? What impact on my life would transitioning have? What impact on my ministry would being out as trans have? Um, and, and fusing those stories together and, and grappling with those was also really meaningful. Uh, those sound fascinating. And uh, I, I have to admit, as a rabbi, I haven't had a lot of experience in, in the deep stories of Jesus. But uh, Joseph is a paradigm for differing sense of self and differing perception of self uh, has long been a subject of discussion from ancient times to today among uh, among rabbinic scholars. In this limited time we have, what's another story you'd, you'd like to raise up from your journey and your ministry? Mm. You know, I, I think um, the very first time I, I was in seminary and I was started to do this this kind of woven theological work for the first time, which was bringing my story to the text, um, seeing what happened when I put my story in conversation with the scriptural story, not to, not to make a scriptural story mean what I wanted to say, um, but instead to say, like, where do I see resonances uh, in this text, in my own story? And, and how might this scriptural story actually reflect back on my own story and help me to understand myself in new ways. Um, and I started doing this work really out of purely selfish reasons in seminary, because I was trying to make sense of my newfound gender um, identity of what it meant to transition. Um, and I thought that this work was really just a way for me to grapple with faith and, and the Bible. And what I found was when I started to share these stories with my classmates and then with congregations that even though I was sharing deeply personal stories, these stories were resonating really broadly and with folks that were not trans, um, that talking about my own scars and Jesus's scars, I would have people come up to me and be like, oh, this actually helped me reflect on my scars in a new way. Um, and that kind of conversation about our own stories and about these ancient stories showed me that there's something really powerful when we do this work in community and when we bring all of ourselves to the text and allow the text to speak back to us. And that, that in this conversation, new understandings open up. And that's, that's been such a gift. It's been such an unexpected gift of my transition and of my theological journey, but it's been one that's been so amazing to share with other people. You know, there's such a need for 
ministry to people who identify as religious and also as transgender or more broadly LGBTQ. Um, but I imagine you also minister to cisgender people uh, on, on the spiritual matters that, that uh, affect their souls. Uh, how, how does that feel to you and what do you perceive that they approach you because of your special insights or for lack of a better term, in spite of your special insights? <laughs> I think it's often in spite of. Um, however, I, I think one of the gifts that queer and trans people bring to the church, um, particularly because that's my context, is that when someone comes to us in spite of our of our unique insights, they end up being blessed by our unique insights <laughs> in spite of themselves. <laughs> um, and so I think that's, you know, that's really what I wanted to to get across in this book too, that that trans theology and queer theology isn't just for queer and trans people, that it's actually for all of us um, and that it helps us come to new understandings of the way that we all move through the world. Like we've all been impacted by binary systems of gender. We've all been impacted by um, culture that tells us that our bodies are bad or that they should be better or different or slimmer or healthier or whatever. Um, and I think that when trans and queer people talk about bodies and gender and scripture, we see things that other people don't see because we've been on the margins for so long. And that when we read from the margins, it actually, um, it opens up space for all people. And that's, and it, and it's a, it's, I keep saying it's a gift because I think it is. It's it's the gift that we have to give to people who aren't on the margins that allows them to understand themselves more fully um, and and in different and more beautiful ways. You know, hearing you talk like that, I, I don't know if you've ever taken a look at a volume of the Talmud, but like many uh, Jewish texts, the main text of the Talmud is in the center of the page. But the commentaries that help you understand what's going on are written in, in the margins all the way around the main text. So there's this block of text in the middle and, and commentaries from all sorts of perspectives and even different periods of time that make up the rest of the page. So it's a very powerful image for me, the way you're talking uh, right now. Mm, that's beautiful. You know, a few years ago on this program, Bishop Gene Robinson was here, and he made the compelling point that the time for, quote, tolerance is over, that what was needed now is radical inclusion and a celebration of the diversity of creation. And the congregations that reject this opportunity hurt not only those they exclude, but everyone else within their own community. There's a similar sense of unique gifts that you highlight in this book. I'd love for you to talk about uh, Gene's insight a little bit. I think Bishop Robinson is absolutely right. Um, we are well past a time for tolerance. Uh, and, and I want to say that, you know, right now it is terrifying to be trans um, in this country in particular, but in other countries as well. The, the number of anti-trans laws that have been um, introduced and passed just this year alone are staggering. And, and so I, it's, for me, this moment of inclusion is also um, a call to action 
for anyone who is wanting to stand in solidarity with trans folks that that right now we need you we need you more than ever and we need you to to not just be um kind to us but to be proactive in in going out and organizing against these laws in organizing pushing back against you know book bans and all of these different things um because the trans community is really small uh, and we need your support in order to do this work and i think that you know bishop robinson's point is also that when trans folks are diminished or pushed out or legislated against that that doesn't just hurt us that hurts all people and we've seen over and over again in history um where you know they don't just stop at one group they come for the next group and the next and so trans folks i think are a, are a bellwether of what's coming and the types of attacks that are going to be on the rise um and it's important that we unite and push back against this now uh before it gets further but also that you know, I, I do think that trans folks have such unique insights into how to understand bodies and gender and how to relate to one another and what it means to form community. Um, you know, there's a joke on Twitter that keeps going around that all trans folks are just passing around the same $20 to whoever needs it that week. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think it's very true, right? Like we're the ones that are showing up to fund each other's medical procedures and surgeries when insurance won't cover them. We're paying for each other's rent. Um, and and in that community, we're offering an example of what it could look like for all of us to be community and to do this work and to take care of one another. And what a different world we would have if we all stepped up when someone was in need and took care of their need um, and created a community where there were safety nets and where people um, could could say what they're struggling with and get help and where we could support one another. Um, and so I think that this is yet another example of, of the type of insight and gift that trans folks can offer to the world. And do you think that message is making inroads? I think it right now it's really hard, right? It's the, the voice of, of folks who are against trans people are so loud and they're so well organized um, and they're getting support even from people who aren't religious uh, that it's really scary. And I think that that's why we so, we so need voices who are in support of trans folks to get loud, to get organized and to push back, especially religious folks. um, But really anyone who, who, wants to support trans people like this is your moment to to rise and and be in solidarity well let's talk about some of those religious folks tell me a little bit about the website and community queertheology.com how did the project get started we started in 2013 because at that point uh even in progressive christian spaces the conversation was stuck in is it okay to be gay And Brian and I kept looking around and saying, you know, there's so much more (laughs) to this conversation than is it okay? Um, And so we wanted to start something that took 
yes, of course it's okay as the starting point, not as the finish line, um, and then expanded from there. And we were also deeply inspired by all of the really incredible academic queer theology work that's been done for years and years, but that is really inaccessible to folks who are outside of the academy. So we wanted to bring the best of, of that academic work, make it accessible to folks, um, but also really create tools and resources for people that wanted to to do this work in their own communities, who wanted to do this work in their own life of reading scripture, both faithfully and queerly. Um, So we started a podcast, we've done some online courses, we've got a robust social media presence. uh, And it's been a real, it's been a really fun journey over the last, I I think we're coming up on 12 years now. Um, it's, It's been it's been phenomenal. So name some of the specific resources you would encourage people to look for. Yeah. So if you are just kind of coming out of a more conservative space and you don't really know where to start, we've got uh, a guide called a quick start guide to finding a faith that fits that's on the website. Um, We usually run our course reading the Bible queerly, um, once a year. And so that will probably be coming up next spring, but that's a, a longer course. And we have a self-taught course or a self, self-paced self course called Journey into the Bible. If you're wanting to learn to read the Bible in its historical and political context, um, that's a deep dive that you can go through on your own. We also have hundreds of articles and a couple of um, like two hour workshops, one called Soul Safe, which is about setting boundaries with tricky family members, um, and one called Clobbering the Clobber Passages, which looks at the texts that are most often used against LGBTQ people and asks not only what might they mean, but how might even those passages be a liberatory message for queer and trans folks. That sounds great. Shay, I spent 40 years in a congregation and barely a week went by when I was uh, not asked to address something completely outside of my direct personal experience. (laughs) How do you counsel your colleagues of the cloth about guiding trans parishioners? Mm. That's that's such a great question. You know, I think um, part of part of the work is to encourage them to do their own reading and study um, so that they understand trans issues a little bit better. Um, part of it is to have done the work before a trans person comes out to make sure that their congregation and their building and their website is safe and is inclusive. Um, and then part of it is to refer, right? To If you really have something that you feel like, I, I'm totally out of my depth. I don't know how to talk to this person. Um, I don't know what to tell them then call in, call in support and call in help and say, um, you know, reach out to us and we can find you a trans pastor or someone to, to talk to these folks. We have a really wide network of folks and, and sometimes it's okay to just say, this is beyond me. I'm going to ask for help. It's, it's really sometimes the hardest three words for a, for a clergy person to say, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you you constantly highlight the importance of story. You're a pastor, but you're also a playwright. 
So talk about a couple of people you've heard from that have been reached by queer theology and how you've impacted their lives with your stories mm. or how they've impacted your life with their stories. Yeah. You know, I, I, I so believe in stories because I think that often when we get into conversations about theology or Bible verses, it's easy to get into this back and forth, right? And we can fight and, um, well, you said this, but I, I say this. Um, and what I found though, is that it's really hard for people to argue with your story and that the more often we tell our stories, um, the more empathy we build and create with one another. And so I, I, I think part of, part of me telling my story has been to provide uh, a bit of comfort and support to people who are also on this journey, both of coming out and figuring out their gender identity, maybe coming out of a conservative Christian tradition and into a more expansive one. You know, and and throughout the queer theology history, we've just seen so many stories of, you know, people coming out for the first time and feeling like they can live freely in in their truth to people transitioning, to people going to seminary then and becoming pastors because they feel like there's a place for them in the church now. And then on the flip side of that, as they've told their stories and shared their insights into scripture, you know, Brian and I have been changed too by bearing witness to people's stories, by um, helping them craft them, by hearing the unique ways that, that they are encountering these texts that are super familiar to us. Um, and it's just been such a gift to, to create that community where we can share with one another. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a really specific example, but there are just so many of, you know, families who have learned how to support their kids better, parents who have been able to step into their own truth, even in the midst of marriages and having their own kids. Um, and it's just been a really it's been a beautiful, a beautiful journey with, with this community. Well, that's great. So then try this question uh, in addition. What's the one takeaway you hope people will have when they've read in the margins, a transgender man's journey with scriptures? That you can bring your whole self to the text and allow the text to change you and allow your story to impact how you read the text, and that that is a deeply faithful and holy thing to do, that it's not, it's, it's not, you know, making the text say whatever you want it to say, but it's instead a really healthy and faithful grappling with scripture and text, um, and that, that something holy happens when you do that work, and when we do that in community. Father Shannon Kearns is a priest in the Old Catholic Church and co-founder of the comprehensive online resource, QueerTheology.com, co-host of the longest-running LGBT Christian podcast. Shay has just published the book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. Shay, thanks so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
We know that participation in traditional organized religion continues to decline in the United States. In fact, recent polling shows that some 40% of American millennials, those born between 1981 and 1996, identify as religiously unaffiliated. So we have a sense of what more and more young people are not. But many of them are finding community, spirituality, and inspiration in new and understudied places. Dr. Sarah Wilkins Laflamme is a Canadian scholar of religion and technology who's been doing groundbreaking research at the intersection of faith and technology, and so is just the person to answer some of these questions. Sarah, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, you've been researching and writing about these topics for quite some time now. What would you say is the biggest misconception about young people and faith these days? Well, that's interesting. I actually see like two poles of misconception at either extreme that I come across when I speak to different groups uh, when I get the chance to talk about my research. So at one extreme, you have the group of kind of like, I don't know, like hardcore secularization theorists or like religions disappeared. It's gone amongst young people. That's not necessarily the case. You do obviously find it in many different forms. And we'll talk about that more today. Um, But at the other extreme, I also encounter people who feel um, that, you know, they've seen those numbers of, of decline of religiosity especially amongst younger generations in the States as well as in Canada. And they think that everyone has just shifted to something else, but that's quite similar. So have maybe shifted from in-person all to digital religion or spirituality. And, you know, some have, but um, there is a big chunk of the millennial as well as the emerging Gen Z demographic that don't do either as well. So the, the kind of the empirical reality is somewhere between the two, right? There is an important segment uh, who do do religion and spirituality online as well as in some cases in person. And then there's a chunk who don't, who uh, any way that, that, that you ask them to define it or any way that we as researchers define religion and spirituality, they are not involved. And so, yeah, so I kind of, you know, try and find the, <laughs> the reality between those two poles uh, when I'm looking at my research. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that reality and what might be in between. Where does religion find expression and connection for millennials today? Well, all over the place. Um, And so it's not just a digital thing for millennials. It's not just an in-person thing. It's usually a combination of both, right? And this is no big surprise. All of our lives, all aspects of our lives now have a strong digital component in them, and especially after the the realities of the pandemic over the last Mm -hmm. two years. Um, And and religion is not immune to that, is part of that as well, right? So what I was finding that, um, you know, most millennials who do religion online, and when I say that, I mean our consuming content about religious ideas, beliefs, behaviors, um, more maybe in some cases more of like traditional with uh, traditional forms of religion with religious groups and and groups that are kind of well known and recognized and have a long history or in more kind of less conventional spirituality ways there are still aspects that are still tied to the supernatural but maybe not necessarily part of of more recognized organized groups and so you know there people are consuming online content, they are participating in that content, they're posting on social media and but often those who do that online it's meaningful to them and amongst those individuals they'll often do some in-person stuff right and so they'll you know attend the occasional religious service or maybe more frequently and so what I found is most of the respondents who are online and doing religion digitally were also doing it in person right there is a small segment who only do digital religion there's a small segment of millennials who only do in-person religion and don't have much follow-up online but most are kind of doing both at the same time and that's, you know, that, that's part of our daily lives for most aspects now that we live through. Yeah. 
that's sort of a decentralization of religious identity. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. does how does that affect re- theological consistency? I, I, who's in charge? Oh, big <laughs> question. Oh, okay. That's a great question. And and it's one that's really um uh, been important for those studying digital religion since, you know, the early days of the internet when this literature or this research began. Right? I've only come into this in more recent years. But you know, this dates back to the 90s basically when internet became more uh, accessible to the public and became more and more popular. And what you know, early researchers on digital religion were finding was that in the early days of the internet, it was, you know, I think, I think a bit like the wild, wild west of the internet was it was very uh, user driven, right? It was very, you know, it was very much, you know, the, the, the user was the content generator. It was chat boards. It was, you know, kind of ad hoc web pages. Some religious leaders were, were innovative and, and going online straight off the bat. But for the most part, it was, you know, a few people, um, you know, who were maybe a little bit more at the margins of a religious group, so were maybe not as involved in person or didn't feel as comfortable participating in person, but were much more involved on, you know, your kind of early days of emailing and, and, and chat boards. And then over time, obviously, and this, again, is something we've seen with the Internet in general, as as the Internet has expanded, become more commercialized, there's bigger companies that now come into play. You know, religious leaders clued in that this was an important source of uh, followers and, and of sure. inf- information giving and gathering. And so now, you know, you still have that user driven content, which puts the kind of the authority much more with the individual, right? Like much more focus on the kind of individual choosing what they want to consume and what they want to do online. But that being said, there's some important gatekeepers now. And, you know, I won't go into all of them. There, There's many. Um, and some of those can be part of more, you know, traditional organized religious groups. Some of them have really kind of built up their online presence and are really part of that virtual world more so than in person. And, you know, so it, it can be gatekeepers. You know, some of the content might be behind a paywall some of it might be you know being written and produced by a small number of influencers and gatekeepers and so there are definitely power dynamics online it's not like everyone's equal and it's <laughs> this, this super democratic way of doing things but there maybe some of that power has shifted uh with the online world right there's new influencers there's new gatekeepers at play and so yeah and, and that has a real impact on you know in-person stuff too right because they're not separate from each other what people are experiencing in the digital world that's being brought into the in-person world and vice versa right so it's kind of also changed the nature of what in-person activities look like some people are expecting a much more interactive experience than maybe they were before because that's what they're used to getting online where they can go in and play a bigger role themselves and and some millennials are coming into the in-person activities with that framework and that way of doing and hoping to find that in person so I'm sure you know that a lot of citizens of the U.S. think of Canada as just the United States with colder temperatures. <laughs> but it's it doesn't feel like that right now. It's really hot. <laughs> but yeah. But uh, you've uh, studied the distinctions between the way these ideas are playing out in Canada and the United States. Can you talk about the differences and? Uh, what leads to those differences for a couple of minutes? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So, you know, obviously Canada gets a lot of its content 
from the states right <laughs> that's the, no surprise and the states gets a little bit of its content from canada and so you know with with the internet there's a lot of you know these borders don't matter as much uh, anymore uh, that being said the, what i was finding in my research when you know surveying millennials and seeing how often they were involved in digital religion activities and posting on social media about religion and spirituality what i was finding was that social environment does seem to really have a big impact so you know in canada we've seen our religiosity measures decline for quite a bit longer than the US. So ours started to decline, especially in the 1960s. And so Canada, as if you look at the Canadian population overall, is on average less religious on many different measures uh, compared to the states, has been so since the second half of the 20th century. Uh, I, in, interestingly, it wasn't before. In the first half of the, second, of the 20th century, we were actually more religious and more conservative than the states, and that flipped around. Um, and, so, and so our measures overall, our averages are now much much lower than the states, even though both countries are kind of seeing that decline. And uh, you see that also in the measures of digital religion consumption and, and social media posting. Canadian millennials, on average, do much less of it and much less frequently uh, than many millennials in the U.S. do. And so, you know, it's still a thing in Canada. It's still important to study. Um, but you do see that impact. It's it's these digital religion measures are not separate from some of the trends we've seen with other measures when it comes to lower levels found in Canada. Yeah. So what are the sources then of, of uh, moral, ethical, religious values that are emerging, if not from traditional religious sources? That's a huge question, Jack. <laughs> I, I, I can only offer my small, my small contribution, and I'm sure many of your future podcasts or future, future works will, will touch more on this. You know, I think we've, we've become a more, uh, you know, just in terms of numbers of how many people we are in society, we're a lot more people, we're a lot more diverse uh, in many different ways. And so I think there's not just one source anymore, right? Like you can maybe think back to like the ag agricultural life world of the 19th century, uh, of settler colonial groups in in North America, and you they were probably getting most of their values from like one or two churches in town, right? <laughs> or like you know, right. there's obviously some more diversity there, but it was probably mostly coming from a few places. Now there's a lot more out there, right? We're in a mo much more complex society in many different ways, um, and so you know there are some you know some millennials are getting kind of you're, they're looking up values, they're reinforcing their own values, they're building their values and sense of meaning online through digital religion and different groups. And, and again, there's so many that I, I can basically can't name them all. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, so many that people can. And, and you know, either with other like-minded individuals or potentially with more like a, through more official channels with the religious groups. And then there's everything else, right? There's every, there's, there's pop culture, there's family, there's friends, there's work. And, and we're all exposed to that. And, and some people kind of seem to navigate more to certain areas rather than others. And like I said, so there's a chunk of the millennials who are kind of getting these values and sense of meaning and spiritual quests through either more traditional religious groups or less conventional spiritualities. And then there's a portion of millennials who aren't, who are getting it through completely different means or who are not even maybe even thinking in those terms and are looking for other things. And so, you know, you can think of like fandom groups or music groups or sports groups or, you know, a thousand other things that are out there. Right. So it's it's an eclectic mix. And I, I guess in a, I always see that our current society is we're not I wouldn't expect it to come from one other thing now. Like it's not like one thing mm -hmm. has replaced religion. Arguably, there was never one thing to do with religion. It was all 
always eclectic, but sure. now now it's even more so. And that's okay. Like in a more complex society, that's probably what you would expect, right? Are are you sensing in in the slice of research that you've done that that finding these values sources for promoting them and challenging them is as important to this generation as it has been in the past, or is it more important, less important? That's a great question, and and you know, I'll, I'll I'll give it, but take it with a grain of salt because you know we're we're only just beginning to touch on these things. My main expertise sure. is kind of measuring how frequently people do certain things through statistics. But what we're finding, so for example, I'm working with a on a big project, an international project that's looking at non-religion, so secularity and kind of non-religious issues. And what we're finding with interviews is people don't even have the vocabulary to articulate things like val like aren't even talking about things in the same way as say previous generations would talk about these issues like meaning values right and, and so i'm sure it's there but it you really have to <laughs> figure out an alternative way of looking at it and and seeing it because you know obviously people have things that are important to them and and things that drive them in their life and and things that they're looking for do they articulate that as like values, as spiritual meaning? Some do, some don't. And so you really have to kind of start scratching at the surface. What we often find is, you know, things like family, like friendships. I think uh, Elizabeth Drescher uses the analogy of the four Fs, uh, the letter F. So like Fido for pets, friends, family, um, um of course, I'm forgetting the fourth one. I always say function for work. Um, but uh, anyways, so, and, and so these things are given meaning and given values, and they're maybe not always discussed in the same way as, say, when you talk about religious values or morals or, or meaning, right? And so that's what we're finding, especially, you know, some people are on spiritual journeys as we tend to more traditionally define them. And some aren't. Some are, are completely outside of that and are doing other things and are even speaking about that that in different ways. I've seen a couple of polls uh, around Gen Z okay. that seem to trend a, more bit, a, a little bit more toward organized religion than the mm. millennial cohort. Is that something you've come across? Uh, okay. So I, I'm holding out for Gen Z because it's very early days for Gen Z. And so let's quickly talk about the distinction between millennials and Gen Z. The border okay. of birth years when it goes from being millennial to Gen Z is debated, right? So I know in the States, for example, you quoted the for millennial birth years, the 80s and to mid 90s is what many groups, some groups in the US use like the Pew Research Center. But other people will use a bit longer time span that goes even into the early 2000 birth years that still counts as millennial. And then Gen Z is the kind of newbies who've been born since the 2000s. Um, some people, we use the distinction between those who had a smartphone ever since they were born, Gen Z, versus millennials who only got smartphone and social media a bit later and so are, you know, having a bit of a different tech, uh, tech social, socialization. Um, but so Gen Z regardless of how you define them, they're still pretty young. And so their survey data is, you still have to view their survey data that data that way, in especially in the fact that there's still a lot of them living with their parents. Not all, there's some Gen Zs who've moved out <laughs> and who have their own households now, but most are still with their parents. And so that's still a time when they're still kind of doing a lot of the stuff that their parents do in their daily lives, including attending religious services or, or being active with a religious group. The key time that we look at when we're talking about things like slowing down on religious behavior or even religious disaffiliation is usually that late teen to early adult years and that transition out of the parental household 
into their own household or separate household, you know, maybe when they go to college or university or get their first job and move out. And that's the key time to look at. And so I'm kind of waiting for that time <laughs> for most of Gen Z to see, are they sticking? I, I have seen the little slight higher uptick in organized religion with that group and so i'm waiting to see if that's going to persist through that period that transitional period or if like with what happened with the millennials you'll see a kind of decline that happens during that transitional period and so we'll wait and see so i'm kind of expecting them to go the way of the millennials but it's interesting to kind of i don't want to i don't want to prejudice prejudice it we'll find out what happens but it's early days yet so so it's a fascinating um result i am seeing it a little bit especially in the states less in canada but it's uh take it uh, be a bit patient and wait for the the next few years of data to see what happens yeah well, I'll tell you, as a boomer, I'm glad that somebody younger like you is interpreting all of this stuff for me because <laughs> I don't understand any of it. Oh, I'm sure you understand more than most, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Sarah Wilkins Laflamme is Sociology Undergraduate Associate Chair at the University of Waterloo and Director of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network, NSRN. Her new book is entitled Religion, Spirituality, and Secularity Among Millennials, just out from Rutledge. Sarah, this is very important work. Thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Well, thank you so much. Have a good day, everyone. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.